Hello, and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host, and today I'm pleased to bring you an interview with most worshipful brother, Dr. Chris Earnshaw. Most worshipful brother Chris has a Bachelor of Arts in Japanese and Chinese from London University. He's got a PhD in neuroscience and is the CEO of a medical device manufacturer living in Tokyo, Japan. I understand he's a pretty accomplished cellist as well. He's the lecturer at the School of Social Sciences at Wasada University in Tokyo, former professor of Asian studies at Daito Bunka University in Tokyo. And he's the past Grand Historian for the Grand Lodge of Japan and a 33rd degree Freemason. He's the author of several books worthy of your attention, including Freemasonry, Royal Arch, The Spiritual Freemason Series, Book 4, Freemasonry, Initiation by Light, The Spiritual Freemasonry Series, Book 1, Freemasonry, Quest for Immortality, and Freemasonry, Spiritual Alchemy, all of the Spiritual Freemasonry Series. buy his books on Amazon. Just look him up. Chris Earnshaw, E-A-R-N-S-H-A-W. Uh, welcome, Chris Earnshaw, to the Rocky Mountain Mason. Thank you for being a guest on our show. I'm super excited to interview you today. I know it's the morning there in Tokyo. Um, yes. For those of you watching this on video, um, Brother Chris is sitting in front of the Tokyo Tower, if I got that correct, yes. under which is the Grand Lodge of Japan, which is kind of cool. Correct. Yes. Yes. Hi. Good morning. Thank you again for being on the show. And Chris, I don't really know where to begin. I mean, you've got a lot going on here. Um, you know, you're a doctor of neuroscience, which is quite interesting. In your picture online, you have what appears to be an acupuncture sort of uh, diagram behind you, which is oh. kind of neat. Yes. So obviously, you're into some of the Eastern um, traditions. Yes. Um, you're a bit of a, a Renaissance man. You're an author. You've written a series of books. Uh, which you know, I've read a, a few snippets online off your on your website, um, which I think are very well researched. That's obviously clear. Um, you have a great attention to detail. You're a good writer. I can tell that already. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as you say, I've written four books on Freemasonry, and uh, two of them are in ja and, uh, two more in Japanese. That's a total of six. But the basic theme I want to put across is that I believe that uh, Freemasonry was based on Chinese Taoist philosophy. Okay, well, that's <clears> the, kind of mind-blowing, yes. 
No, I've seen pictures a okay. long time ago of a guy holding what appeared to be compasses in one hand yeah. and a square in the other. You know the diagram yes, I'm I talking. Do. Yes. And it's very old, correct? Yes. So that is actually the image people kind of see what they hope to see or expect to see. The um, the compasses are in reality a pair of shears. Oh, okay. uh, rather like we have for shearing sheep. It's a spring. Uh, it's been just bent round on itself. And it, you use one hand, not like scissors, but more like old shears. And what looks like to be a square is actually um, holding a reel of, of cotton or silk. And the gotcha. idea is that it's the same as um, the, the story of Atropos, that uh, she, she's one of the muses and she cuts the life of man. So each you pull the string and you get 90 years, you get 95 years. It's up to her. And these two Chinese gods, uh, Fushi and Nuwa, are responsible for cutting, for determining people's length of life. Okay, so it's not necessarily no, Masonic at all. It is Masonic at all. No, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, but uh, in reading your your um your your stuff on this, it appears that at the time of the formation of the Grand Lodge of England, yes. there was yes. a growing fascination with the with the East. Yes, yes. So the Grand Lodge of England started off as the Premier Grand Lodge in 1717, and from 16 about 1660. Um, in England, we had started to import things from China, uh, for example, tea and silk and uh, even furniture. And of course, some um, cups and bowls be because China had the technology to make porcelain. And up to that time, we were using uh, kind of rough, uh, what was it called, um, stoneware. Uh, for drinking everything out of. And everybody in those days drank beer all day long. If you were yeah. rich, you drink wine, sherry, brandy, which was all imported. But the poor people uh, drank beer. And uh, that is because the water was so bad that uh, in the beer process, you probably boil the water and the hops and everything. And it got rid of all the bacteria. Uh, children drank beer. Uh, it's called small beer, and it was watered down with water. But they would drink beer all day long. So when tea came in, this was something that women could drink. And tea shops became very popular. And so there was a real issue with people being drunk all the time. And it actually got worse. Uh, after the... Um, <clears throat> 1688, the Glorious Revolution, when William III came to England to be crowned king with Mary II. I'm sure in America you've heard of William and Mary, the university, <laughs> among other things. Yes. Anyway, he, he imported the idea of, of making gin. And so everybody started making gin and the economy went to pieces because everybody was drinking gin all day long. <clears throat> Yes, I, I remember reading that originally coffee yes. displaced beer as the breakfast beverage of choice. But because the Dutch East India Company Correct. cornered the coffee market, yes. the British East India Company thought, I know, tea. <laughs> and so hence tea became very patriotic as it is today. Yes. So we, um, the 
the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, and the British industry uh, were actually fighting against each other for trade routes in the Far East. Yes. Crazy, right? Now, I know I think they, they, they had charters to, to wage war on behalf of the sovereign. I yes. know what was then Ceylon, I think it was called, was yes. actually taken yes. uh, by either the Brits or the, the, the Dutch and was turned into a coffee plantation, correct? And Just uh, Malacca and uh, Suriname and places like this. And yes, uh, so everybody was looking for luxuries and better things, I suppose. And with the opening of the southern route, um, through the Cape of Good Hope, um, which is open, I think, 1490 or something. Then the whole Far East became open to Europeans. <clears throat> so the, the Silk Road wasn't really bringing much along. Was that due to skirmishes and the like? Or Yes, I, the Silk Road, um, it was small, uh, mainly lightweight things. They wouldn't bring tea because it's bulky, but silk was very valuable and wasn't so large. So... That's why it was called the Silk Road. And um, mainly silk started being sold from Italy to England. Um, but then after a while, England was able to trade directly with China. And this lasted for 150 years. And um, so even the furniture, we have a name for it. It's called Shinwazerie. It's special furniture with dragons and Chinese gardens designs on them. Oh, great. Yeah. And okay, then, so, so you, then yes, the rich people started um, importing Chinese wallpaper, and that wallpaper was hand-painted. And so obviously, you know, repeating a pattern by hand must mean difficult. Um, then we had all the chinaware coming through, and then people started designing houses with Chinese roofs, Chinese gardens. Um, then the queen, uh, the Dowager Queen, not 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 the Dowager, the Queen. Um, she, uh, George the Third's wife, she had a pagoda built in the royal gardens at Kew, and it still stands there, three hundred years later. It's still open to the public. Incredible, That's great. And then they had a house of Confucius built in Hyde Park um, that deteriorated, and then just all over the country, people were building things, and they were having dragons. Yeah, um, on on the gates to the to their their estates have big dragons there. You know, I mean, it was if I think what it was, it was a kind of influencer. When the king became interested in something, then the aristocracy who had the money um, followed him, and then it tripled down to the population. <clears throat> Makes sense. So, so your theory is that the the Tao, yes. Um, Eastern philosophies came alongside the tea leaves. Yes. And yes, it were sort of recharacterized and explored yeah. in the safe haven of a Masonic lodge because of the strong, yeah. you know, clerical nature of the of the world then. At least so yeah. th there are three or four issues that kind of mesh together. One of them is uh, to do with the religious situation between the Protestants and the Catholics. And this explains the, the friction between the premier Grand Lodge, which were called the moderns, and then the ancients. Uh, the second thing is, as mentioned, popularity of Chinese things. And thirdly, the spiritual component of Freemasonry, which is the search for immortality. Yeah, and the Chinese 
had a technique uh, to, for you to experience immortality. Um, we, we now call it astral proje projection or out-of-body experience, but the Chinese were doing this as a religious practice. And it was written in a book called uh, The Secret of the, of the Golden Flower. And um, I believe a Chinese person who is very well situated, he was a Mandarin, he visited London in 1680, 1690, and he met all the most influential people. He met um, King James II. Uh, King James II was so taken by this Chinese Mandarin that he actually had a full-length portrait painted. Well, they were very expensive in those days. You know, paintings nowadays, we don't see it as being expensive, but there were very few people who could paint well. And um, so he had his painting done and he hung the painting in his bedroom of all places. He was so taken by this Chinese person. And the Chinese person, uh, he met uh, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, all the leading people. And um, in Germany, um, uh, uh, sorry, my mind suddenly went blank. But yes, yeah, so people around Europe were taken. And one of the re second reason was that Jesuits were based in China and they were translating Chinese literature into Latin. And so that meant educated people could read it. Everybody uh, who's educated in Europeans could all read Latin. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, very interesting. So is, is it your, your theory that this uh, visitor to the royal court mm. who uh, became friends with the Royal Society was able to demonstrate the ability to astrally project? Or uh, I don't think he demonstrated it, but he um, did talk about it. Um, and the reason I say this, there are two reasons. First is that in uh, 2016, I was initiated into a Chinese Taoist temple in Taiwan, just out, cool. uh, in the mountains outside Taipei. And uh, that ritual um, is exactly the same as the first degree in Freemasonry. <clears throat> and I was just speechless when I saw them and I, afterwards asked the, um, the, the commanders, the people who organize it, um, about it. And they've been, this ritual's been carrying on for nearly 2,000 years. Same. And so I've Same seen, entry, same preparation, same grips. Um, the yes. So, for example, there are in the, te in the Chinese the Taoist temple, there are three officers and each, they represent the, the sun, the moon and the universe. And wow. the man who represents the universe is known as the light transmitting officer. And he brings, oh, cool. he brings the light from the altar to the candidate. Yeah. And um, they have a secret word, a secret sign. And uh, uh, what's the other thing? A secret way of holding their hands, <clears throat> yeah. which is yeah. they're called the three treasures. And they're taught to the candidate. Uh, after the ceremony. Um, I don't talk about, um, only just in passing, I talk about the three treasures because like Freemasonry, I, I took an oath in Taoism that I wouldn't tell other people. 
John, yeah, no, yeah. don't reveal yeah. the secrets. Yeah. But that is very fascinating. So it could definitely represent a direct link for inspiring the degrees. It could yeah. also be founded in the same cloth. You know, perhaps there is a symbolic undertaking humans do take, because the Egyptians also allegedly had a means of actually demonstrating the separation of consciousness from the body. Yes. He says, that's yes. what I've been told. I have no, absolutely no basis to say that. <laughs> right. That's, that's but, what I've been told. But then when you look at, uh, so in uh, China, there are actually three types of Taoism. Um, there is a philosophical Taoism, which is the one I joined, and they study Confucius and Mencius. And um, in fact, the three officers are said to represent uh, Lao Tzu, who uh, wrote the Tao Te Ching, and Confucius and Mencius. So rather like King Solomon, King Hiram, and Hiram Abiff, they also represent three famous uh, philosophers. Uh, then there is a more magical type of um, Taoism, which practices this out-of-body experience. And the third type is a more shamanistic um, ah. village type of you know, local type. Yeah. So, so the first yeah. degree, uh, at the beginning of uh, 1717, for the first 10 years, there was no third degree. There was just a first and a second degree. In 1725, they introduced the third degree, and this is where the emphasis is on immortality. If you look at the degree, you'll see immortality is mentioned uh, five or six times in, in the ritual. And, okay. you know, uh, die hoping for a glorious immortality or something like that. Um, <clears throat> the being kind of like an evergreen and all that kind of stuff. Too. That's also part of it, yes. And so the one of the Taoist, uh, this, 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 the um, magical type of Taoism, they taught this technique from the uh, secret book of the golden uh, flower. And mm. when we look at the third degree ritual in detail, we can see it's very close, very close to what is being taught in the golden, golden flower. So you think that some of the Royal Society must have been initiated into this Taoist tradition and then it was imported into Freemasonry? I don't or think it was so much the, the Royal Society. There was a lot of crossover between Freemasonry and the Royal Society. Uh, the Royal Society didn't have it, um, a permanent place for probably 50 years. You know, yes, being one of yes. the really speculative guys. I know he was a bit of an aristocrat. Right, um, right. And you'd mentioned, you mentioned Boyle, both yes. roles. And think about Christopher Wren, you know, what about old Christopher Wren? Well, this is, a, a, again, where there's a bit of confusion between operative Freemasonry and speculative Freemasonry. And Christopher Wren, um, he, he would have been in his 90s. I think he died, in fact, before the beginning of, of speculative Freemasonry. You might um, be right. He was an operative Freemason, uh, I, if he was an operative, I'm not sure if he is. The only proof we have is written in the constitutions of speculative Freemasons. And the reason they put him in, you know, our brother, the Grand Master Christopher Wren, they put it in to make their society look more illustrious and more um, with, with a great uh, legend and um, a long history of famous people joining. But in fact, a lot of that is not true. Well, I, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of debate on that subject. And interestingly, a past master of Quattro Coronati, I think it was James Campbell, um, 
has made an argument in his Bostonian lecture that Christopher Wren was actually the grandmaster of the speculative masons. So I know that debate is still alive. And you may disagree. I don't know. Well, no speculative way. masonry didn't start until 1717. That I would disagree with, because well, I can go back to 1640s and show yeah. you gentle masons being made masons in Scotland. Now, yeah. Are they going through the same kind of ritual? We don't know, but they certainly weren't stone workers. Um, right. So what happened in Scotland is that um, there were many work. Firstly, the, the lodges in Scotland, but it's not just Scotland, but other places, the workers were mainly illiterate. Um, workers in those days, blue collar workers, didn't have an education. That's where you get the, the, mar the mark degree from. They had to mark their work with a sign that they recognized that represented them. Uh, one of the reasons that the aristocracy were interested uh, in joining these lodges was, first of all, to, to communicate with their people because they were working in different places and they got together once a month uh, in a hall and they talked about things. And then uh, new Masons were initiated and, and joined as Masons. And this is like many guilds in England. Um, Freemasonry was actually a fraternity, but uh, most of the guilds um, were very organized and people had to take apprenticeships and exams. Apprenticeship was seven years. That was set by law. Uh, that it was a seven year apprenticeship. And then after that time, they had to be a journeyman for a couple of years. And finally, they had to show a masterpiece to their, um, their guild to show that they were qualified to be called a master. Uh, Sadler, Fletcher, uh, Cooper, or whatever they were. But Freemasons um, weren't restricted by geography. Uh, others were. And they were also, for example, like um, uh, in, in Yorkshire, where they made wool, uh, these um, wool makers who, who belonged to a guild of wool, wool makers, whatever they're called, um, could, could not leave the region. They were not by law. They were not allowed to leave the region, and the alders yeah. men from the local city they organised the wages and other things, the working conditions of the guilds, in conjunction yeah. with them. So, but Freemasons had to travel to different sites, um, often long distances, and for that reason, they were called um, a, a fraternity. So the. For, for people to be able to oversee them, I believe that uh, they joined the, the lodges. And one, for example, one of them, uh, Alexander, I forget his second name, he was the keeper of the royal purse for building in Scotland. It was Lord Ancientlick, I think, uh, from yes. Harbour Lodge, there, I think, maybe. There are several, several of them joined. Um, yeah. But he had access to money to pay for roads and bridges and new buildings. And if he could meet the workers and the people who are the senior people in the guilds all at the same place, that seems to be a very organized way of doing things. So I, I don't think he joined to learn anything from the, the guilds. I don't think there would be anything that's of interest to him. But, Have you seen the, the yeah. Bale Bridge Square? He? Sorry? Have you ever seen the Bale Bridge Square from Ireland? No, that I haven't. In the 16th century. 
Um, well, it's a square, you mm. know, it's a Mason square. Mm. Um, it has um, inscribed upon it a saying that is um, references fraternity. I'm trying to remember what it says. Yeah. I should oh, okay. see it in my mind. I can't quite recall. It'll come to me later on. Right. Um, but it was found under a bridge when they were restoring a bridge that was built in the, the 16th or 15th century. Mm. Um, it goes, I, I would live with due care to live by the level and to live on the level and by the square, something right. like that it says. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily true that all of these guys were just brute laborers. I mean, think about the complexity of making a flying buttress. Yeah. And they had to have certainly a mastery of ge geometry, whether or not they were able to write the written word. But I think of Melrose Abbey as a great example mm. of a master of the work, a master mason inscribing in carving Latin words. Yes. Um, here was a very well-educated tradesman um, working on a very old abbey. I, I also wonder, you know, about the journeyman point that um, certainly in the Cistercian abbeys, just as a, for the sake of argument mm. here, um, they consecrated, if you will, lay brethren of the craft. Mm. And these were, because they were a, a poor obedience, they could not hire labor. Mm. So they basically had people join at an early age, probably a third son or second son or something, somebody who the family needed to get rid of. Who knows? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. right. Send him to their cloisters. Yeah. And rather than um, ordaining him, mm. they would trade him in the crops and he would go and he would become a stonemason and he would go to different abbeys and do his thing. But they were obviously learned because they had to do their stuff, right. learn their Latin. But anyway, right. I mean, that's a different, like, it but doesn't necessarily. I think what it is, they're still blue collar workers. At the bottom, yes. and the difference is the speculative masons. They were gentlemen; they were members of the gentry. They weren't blue-collar workers, and they were interested in philosophical things, uh, which blue-collar workers were not. Uh, so that, I disagree with that again implicitly <laughs> okay. because, because of this. Because let's say I am a stonemason. Mm. Number one, I am. Let's say I'm lifting stuff, I'm making, I'm carving. I'm also overseeing the work. And what am I building? If I'm building a wall, I'm building a castle, I'm working for the state, and I'm working at the highest level of the state, I'm being paid very handsomely mm. to bring my skills, which no one else has, and I keep very secret because I want to keep my business. Yeah. But if I'm building a church, yeah. under that philosophy of that time period, certainly in the high Middle Ages, I'm not really building a building. I'm creating a microcosm right, for the indwelling of deity. Mm. I'm aligning it to the seasons. right? Most of right. these early churches are also calendars and they're remarkable in their ability to show the solar month along the yeah. analemmas yes. that they drew on the floor that my friend i couldn't repeat today mm -hmm. you know using science i could probably mess around with it i could go online but i couldn't calculate it mm -hmm. <laughs> but these guys were doing it and they might have been doing it by simple observation absolutely drawing shadows you know sticking a plum and taking two, three years just mm. to map it out. Mm. That's certainly possible. But I believe that they, they did have a type of knowledge, um, which I think in that day and age was science. But I my personal feeling is, yeah, I understand where you're coming from, but my personal feeling is a lot of this information was uh, learnt when the Templars went to the Far East and they talked to um, uh, Arab scholars and they actually lived in, in the Far East, and so many of them were actually born in the Far East. And English was their second language. They spoke Arabic first. And when they brought these ideas back, then they, they told the, the stonemasons what they wanted. And they said, we want uh, it, the arches are very Islamic arches, yeah. in, even in churches. 
absolutely yep. uh, Bruchetti's dome would not have been yeah. built yeah. had he not gone to Baghdad. No doubt about that. And so these these um, uh, the Templars themselves were basically they were knights, but they were also educated people, and yeah. they weren't blue. Oh, you've frozen. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. I will cut this piece out of the podcast if I remember. I can hear you fine. <laughs> oh, you're back. Yes. Chris, okay. You froze on my end. That probably may or may not have frozen on the recording, but you said that you 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 ended where I heard with you know they were educated yes. knights. They were. And then you froze. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. I, I could hear you. Okay. But oh, yes, could you? So okay, they were educated uh, people who joined because they had a vision for uh, a Christian Europe and they wanted to regain the Holy Land, which is the raison d'etre of Christianity. And so these weren't blue collar workers and they learned from the Arabs many advanced techniques and the Arabs themselves also learned from the Indians and the Chinese because they traded with them. And Absolutely. so then these ideas, they came back and told a, a, a stonemason, this is what I would like you to do. I, I want Islamic arches. I want uh, these patterns on the floor. So I, I don't personally feel that these um, uh, beautiful buildings, like, uh, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral, I don't it's think it, it's anything to do with the workers i think it's the people like sir christopher wren and uh, the people he associated with that had the sure. ideas yeah i mean that and that may very well be true but i i think at the same time you'd have to be able to you know i could draw something that would not be buildable um so he's obviously building some drawing something he knows can be built and then they're actually making it happen i mean it's uh i i think it, there's room for for both angles on that but i back to your point yes um there is no doubt that Eastern philosophy informs the work of Freemasonry. Mm. And there's no, I agree with you there hundred percent, especially when it comes okay. to the immortality of the soul, right? Because there was a teaching and Jehovah's witnesses, if I'm not mistaken, still believe today mm. that the soul is not immortal and that yeah. the resurrection is in the body. Yeah. And we come into a new world, much like the one we're in right now, but there's enough room for everybody right. apparently, right. which is, <laughs> right. Yes. So yes. But, but Pythagoras and Plato believed in the immortality of the soul. And that may have come from India too. Who knows, well, right? It's there's highly possible. two other points that are interesting, I think, is that uh, the Royal Society, even as early as um, about 1680, was looking to find a universal language, the language that predated English and Spanish and Latin. And they thought that uh, they had two ideas. The first one they believed was uh, it could be Hebrew because of the Bible. But secondly, they also thought that Chinese could be the, the language. It's a very strange choice, but many of them believed this, uh, including Robert Boyle. And the second thing, which is, I, I think is a kind of important point, is that we find that um, the ancients were um, not as a, as a group, but people within the, the ancients were uh, designing new degrees, uh, such as the Scots master, the Irish master degree, that were using Chinese words in the degrees. That's awesome. I didn't know that, but yes. that's that's yeah, that's definitely the beginning of what we would call the York right in the yes. US and the Scots right yes. as well. Yeah, um, very interesting. And yes. can you show that they're Chinese words? Or are they just phonetically <laughs> spelled out? No, they are uh, Chinese. And in my books, um, 
they are actually written phonetically, um, but the the meaning of the word is written in brackets beside it. And then I, one of the problems was that spelling had not been dictionary to be um, um, Ben Johnson's dictionary. And was it Samuel Johnson? Yeah, sorry, Samuel Johnson. Yeah, Ben Johnson's a great playwright, yes. though. He did The Alchemist. That's yeah. what you're thinking of. No, awesome. Samuel Johnson's dictionary. Yes. And until that time, there was like Shakespeare's, for example, his name's written four different ways. And so um, uh, when you look at these, uh, the Irish master, the Scots master and the grand architect degree, you find the Chinese words are spelled a little bit strangely. But I was able to look back at um, the original and find what the original word is. Um, That's really cool. And so some of them are passwords and others are instructions like stand up, sit down. They used uh, CV, for example, to, to stand up um, and uh, then passwords and things. So I believe the ancients knew that the, the moderns had a Chinese based degree. But because the modern the ancients weren't allowed into the, the, the lodges of the moderns, they could only guess what it could be going on. So they started making something similar. The, the, one of the things is to do that has to be understood is, is the class structure in England is very, very strict, even today. And um, in those days, when you were gentry, you didn't really meet with people who are blue collar workers. So the blue collar workers tended to join uh, the ancients. Secondly, they were mainly Irish and Scottish people, and they were Catholics. And Catholicism uh, had been, uh, it's not frowned on, but it was made illegal to, to be a member of a Catholic church in England at that time. And so the, the Premier Grand Lodge were Protestants and middle class and, and upper class, and they wanted, the first thing they wanted to get is a noble Grand Master. And um, they did, they got uh, the uh, Duke of Wharton and unfortunately the Duke of Montague and other people. Montague was okay. Duke of Wharton was a, a disaster. It was a bit of a rake from what I understand. Uh, I mean, well, see, he, he supported the, the Catholics yeah. and particularly the, the Jacobites. And mm -hmm. so because the ancients were ca uh, Catholics, mainly Scottish, they supported the Jacobites. And in England, we had had a lot of uh, fights between the Jacobites and coming into England. Before the Grand Lodge was set up, there yeah. were four major incursions into England by um, a Catholic army trying to take the throne of England. And it started in Prince Charlie, <laughs> the Bonnie Prince Charlie. Yeah, that, right? that was later, but yes. So this is eight, 1689 was the first one. The right. um, then 1716 was the year before the Premier Grand Lodge was set up, and after that there were still two more incursions. So we had a total of six attempts to take the the, uh, the King jo well at the time it's King George the first, but. Um, Try and William the Third and Anne, Queen Anne the First, and you know each time the the Scots and Irish joined forces and tried to take the throne of England, 
And that was yeah. looked on really badly by the Premier Grand Lodge. And that's why they um, they called them goats. They called the ancients goats. And that's where the whole story of goats comes from. It's, it's a little bit strange. Oh, yeah. They, they call them geese, too, as well. Right. The wild geese, because they get flying back to France and stuff. That's well, that's one. Yes, that was one expression. Correct. Yes. yes. It, it's interesting because, you, you know, I think there's a lot of scholarship that is coming out on on this fact that you really can't understand the Enlightenment without understanding Freemasonry's role along those lines, Whigs, Tories, Jacobites, yes. Hanoverians. Yes. Now, you know, I, I, I'm not a Catholic, but I think I, I shouldn't say this because it's ridiculous, but looking at the bloodlines, I think Bonnie Prince Charlie had a better claim to the, to the throne. What do I know? I don't know. But like, you know, he, he was, a, wasn't he a Tudor? Wasn't he also a Plantagenet? Wasn't he like all of the Royal lines? And they went all the way over to Germany to get George. Well, the, so the law had been changed that um, only a Protestant be, could become monarch of England. Yes. And they searched <laughs> the family trees and there were many Catholics that were uh, more entitled to become uh, king of uh, king or queen of England than George, but they were all Catholics. And I know they wouldn't they, renounce the faith. Ah, yeah, uh, that wouldn't work. <laughs> that wouldn't <Yeah>. work. <laughs> we can't have no Papist on throne. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't like that. Now the whole idea of that. There was some, um, particularly the jet. You know, this for example in the ritual, this word "no secret evasion in my in me." Uh, no secret evasion of mind in me whatsoever or whatever. So yeah, yeah. tongue twister. But that is actually based on uh, people who are Catholic, um, who gave up their religion to become Protestants because the Protestants didn't believe them. They thought there were there was some sort of evasion in mind. They they were pretending on the surface to be Protestants, but secretly they were Catholics. And yeah, that's like where the, that word from casuistry is a term just to explain that the the Jesuits used it a lot. They were yeah. Catholics, but um, Catholics weren't really allowed to practice in England at the time. Very interesting. So the important yeah. thing is, is that um, we have to look at the Protestant Catholic issue. We have to look at class structures and uh, we also have to look at this, this idea of immortality. And on top of that, this this um, um, boom in Chinese things at the time. <clears throat> right. And so we have trade routes to bring in Eastern philosophy. We have the inspiration of a new way of explaining different ways of understanding. Yes. And yes. You mentioned in your article that they were meeting in pubs because yes. this was safe grounds to discuss what would otherwise potentially be heretical ideas. Is that fair to say? Um, yes. So I, um, I, I don't think they were meeting in pubs for that reason, but um, pubs became uh, a center of, the, of different types. So the pubs tended to specialize. If you had a pub near the Globe Theater, then you would have a lot of actors in that pub, and they tended to be ended up as being a, a, a thespian's pub. Uh, if you were near the had a pub in Fleet Street, which is near the law courts, then you had a lot of lawyers in there. And so uh -oh. <laughs> the pubs tended to specialize. And be, and the in fact, uh, King Charles II was very worried about this, and he tried to close down uh, coffee houses, particularly. Um, 
but um, pubs, pub, it's yeah, it's fascinating because um, because the introduction of gin in the 1690s, um, people were allowed to make gin at home, and everybody was making gin to make money on the side, and so you had different types. That's why you go into um, uh, a liquor liquor store, I think you call it, it'll say London gin, London dry gin, because this is where all these different um, recipes for making gin came from. Originally, they came from uh, Holland, but uh, we kind of thought up new ideas of how to make gin. But people were going blind. They, there was prostitution everywhere to make money so they could buy gin. It was just total, total chaos. Total chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy time. I'm trying to think of the second grandmaster of the ancients, who was also a bit of a rake. He might have been the grandmaster of, of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, too. Um, there's a very funny story about him on his deathbed, dying dissolute, and as a result of protracted alcoholism, that a very pious cleric wrote him a letter. And he said to him, you know, dear sir, I hope now that you realize the error of your ways and that you will repent. And to cut a long story short, what he did was, is he, because it just said, dear sir, and then it was signed by this very pious man, he folded it up and he sent it to another very pious man in Dublin. And by the time they got, the guy opened up the letter and saw this admonition to repent for his evil life, and he was very angry and he reported the, the cleric, you know, to the bishop or what have you. Oh, I've lost you. And uh, well, to finish my story, since this is still recording, um, by the time they discovered the ruse, the man was dead. <laughs> so he went out. He went out with a uh, with a joke, which I think is quite funny. Um, I will pause the recording and hope that our guest comes back. Yes, please. Yes. This meeting is being recorded. <laughs> Okay, great. So yes, what I was saying was, I think it was the, the second grandmaster. I can't believe I've forgotten his name because he's such a colorful character. Anyway, he, so he's, I think he was of Ireland and he's on his deathbed. He's in bed. He gets this letter from, you know, the local priest who has been cautioning him of his ill-gotten ways for a long time. And the letter basically says, dear sir, I hope yeah. now you realize the error of your wasted life. I hope that you will repent, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Insert many platitudes and moralizing and signed, you know, the, 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 the priest, the, the, the vicar, right? The, the local vicar. So he, he, he folds it up and he gives it to his man. And he says, listen, deliver this to so-and-so who happened to be a rival of his, a very, very pious noble, another um, you know, earl or, or titled fellow. And again, I should really, before I relate the story, I should probably get the name straight. So <laughs> okay. I to say, this very pious man opened up the letter and it said, dear sir, I hope by now you've realized the error of your wasted life and you'll repent, et cetera, et cetera. So he was very upset. And he reported the vicar, you know, to the bishop, like, how dare this? I'm very, I'm very pious. I go to church all the time. And by the time they figured out what had happened, the grandmaster was dead. <laughs> so he, he, he went out with a, with a joke, which I think is rather funny. Um, yeah. But he, he was one of those, uh, I think he was a hellfire club member. So he, he doesn't necessarily represent our, um, our philosophy as <laughs> is imparted in the degrees anyway. So no, let's get back to this Chinese connection because I mean, yes. there's definitely no doubt that China has been incredibly important as an ancient cult culture. I think of paper, I think of fireworks, I think of tea. Um, I think of a lot of different things. Um, yeah. Maybe even the pen and ink. I don't know. I'm just imagining that. I know that 
you know, today we've got a lot of rivalry going on over there. Um, but certainly it makes sense that, um, you know, in, in that time period, that right. alongside the trade routes, and of course, Masons were traveling men, the guilds were traveling men, the East India Company was traveling, right. Um, right. and they have similar structures that these secrets might come back alongside them. Yes, so this continued until about 1839 and the Opium Wars. And what hap happened is that the British, as usual, these trading people were very greedy and they wanted to make more money. They started a triangular trade between India, China and Britain. And so the ship would go out um, to, they'd go to India uh, where they grow opium and then they take the opium and sell it in china they would receive china ware which is very heavy they'd use it as ballast for the ship and then they bring tea and silk and other things and then they bring it back to um uh, to england so this triangular trade going on and the the, the emperor of china um was really upset that the british was selling chinese opium to his his citizens and he wanted it stopped and the British said no we demand access to the Chinese market we demand you know all his demands he wanted and it ended up as war and then the Chinese stopped automatically all exports from China and the Chinese uh, the the war went on for about three four years there were first and second opium wars but um, then China became a closed country just at the same time, Napoleon had sent an expedition to Egypt. Um, they had found, uh, the, of course, the pyramids, but they found the Sphinx was just a big, just a lion's head sitting in the sand. And mm. he had it, ex took all the sand out and excavated it. And wow. when they were there, they found the Rosetta Stone. What I thought you were going to say was translated in about uh, I think it, the the the, war, the expedition was 1799, but it took until about 1820 to translate um, uh, Jean Pierre Champollion, I think it was, and so from that time, then there was a, a new because China was no longer the flavor of the month. Now everything was everyone was focused on Egypt, and then yeah. it's what called Egyptomania. And it's actually a term, Egyptomania. And everything was, they were looking at Egypt. And um, now we, for example, in London, we have um, some obelisks that have been taken from Egypt and put on the edge of the Thames. It's called Cleopatra's Needle. And you That's have in America, too. I have yep. all around the world, uh, obelisks. And the, Vatican. the Vatican's got yeah, one too. Of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so from that time on was that then you had things like the Egyptian rite, uh, the rite of Memphis starting. And then many people saying, oh, yes, but Freemasonry has an Egyptian origin. <laughs> you know? And yeah. um, like that Peter certainly said that as Cagliostro had his Egyptian yeah. rite and on and so yeah, forth. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So this, this goes through in, in kind of in waves. And after Egypt, of course, it was India because that was Queen Victoria. She was Empress of India, and then people became interested. So we went from China to Egypt to in India. <laughs> um, going back in time, maybe. I don't know. You know, we're always looking for the oldest, I guess, right, as if that makes it better somehow. 
the ancientist. Yeah, I, it's, it's just people, um, the flavor of the time. People were interested, didn't know anything about Egypt. So in the early days, nobody had ever been to China. Um, Jesuits are writing books about China without ever having been there. They just, um, uh, they would interview other priests who had been to China and they would write down, write down their memories and sell it as a book. So a lot of the information about China was uh, secondhand or even thirdhand. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> yes. And, and was it appreciably different in that time period? Just culturally? I mean, wasn't it basically, I would imagine, somewhat similarly set up with sort of, I don't know, provinces that are ruled by whoever's the strong and then the rich and the powerful? Are you talking about China or England? Well, everywhere. China oh, okay. and England. You know. Well, China um, had been unified uh, uh, by the first emperor of China. And this, and in fact, um, the Duke of Wharton refers to him. He set up an organization called the Gormagons. And it's yes. actually the Gormagons, the real title is the Chinese Order of Gormagons. And if you look at in, in my book, I've got um, an etching um, by William Hogarth of a Gormagon parade, and it shows four Chinese um, philosophers leading the parade with uh, the Freemasons sitting on a donkey. And they want, cool. they want to make fun of him. <clears throat> yes. So at that time, the future of Freemasonry was still up in the air, but um, uh, Gormagon was a really badly thought out uh concept and and particularly wharton had because he he supported uh the jacobites and the catholics he was always in trouble in parliament because being a duke he was in in the um what we call the upper house <laughs> you call house um, lords, yeah. sorry the house so, of lords yes house of lords but you call the upper house i suppose yes so he was in the house of lords and he didn't have to be voted because he's a duke he just walked in he, he took a seat uh, but he was always attacking the king and supporting the jacobites and at that time it was not a good position to have and eventually um he he had to leave the country he was bankrupt uh, he did a lot of bad things and um he had his title stripped from him, his, all his property and everything, and he died a pauper. But this yeah, is what happens. Son almost got the same treatment, but I think he managed to survive, didn't he? This his son. Duke, his son? The Duke, the Duke of Warden's son, yes. Duke of Warden's son, uh, little is known of him. Um, oh, oh, no, the only son he had died of smallpox. Yes. Well, in that case. I'm obviously very confused. Maybe a um, the and he he um, he disowned his wife because at that time there were many outbreaks of smallpox in the city of London, and uh, they lived in the country. And his wife brought his son uh, to the city, and they both caught smallpox. The boy died, and because of that, um, the duke disowned his wife. But, oh, no. um, and he never met, never met her again. <clears throat> it's horrible. That's yeah, terrible time picture. was really brutal in those days. There was no police force. There was um, no way to control what was going on in the city. There was no proper sewage. People threw their sewage into the street. You know, um, yeah. if you read, uh, for example, Bleak House, 
by yes. um, Charles Dickens, yeah. the, the poor people were paid to um, brush the the horse droppings and other manure off the road so that rich people can cross. And the rich person would give him a, a small coin and then he would sweep a passage across the road. It was that bad, you know. But yeah, London doesn't all the sound transport like was horses, you know, the carriages and horses. And yeah. they just dump when whenever they want to, you know. So yeah. it's a dirty place. It's a dangerous place. There was a lot of disease. Um, I th even the the Great Fire of 1666 didn't really get rid of it all, but um, it did make a big change. Did make a big change. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your enlightening conversation. Um, I'd love to do this again sometime, and we'll talk about your other books. And so, so wh why don't you um, give us the title the titles of your books here while we'll put it out on the air? Folks oh, want to pick one. Very kind. So the series is called Spiritual Freemasonry, and that's the kind of concept. Uh, the first book, which is about, uh, explains the relationship between China, Freemasonry, and Taoism, uh, that's called Initiation by Light. Freemasonry, Initiation by Light. And then the, the other books uh, connect from there. You know, there's a, one book for each degree and one book for the Royal Arch. And wh where can people buy these books? Uh, Amazon. Uh, I think it's only Amazon. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Then, and I'm just going to spell your name so folks know. It's Chris Earnshaw. Yes. That is C-H-R-I-S-E-A-R-N-S-H-A-W. Very kind, thank you. Uh, we we also have um, uh, on YouTube spiritual Freemasonry. I've got 70, 80 videos there about what we've been talking about. And there, I just recently, about a year ago, started a podcast called Freemasonry in Seven Minutes or Less. Very short no. topics about Freemasonry. That's perfect. And and I've got the titles here. So you've got Freemasonry, Spiritual Alchemy, Freemasonry Initiation by Light, Freemasonry Royal Arch, Freemasonry Quest for Immortality. You should be my manager. You're doing such a good <laughs> job. <laughs> hey, thank you. You're very kind. Well, well, one last question, just because I'm yeah, curious. Please. What brought you to Tokyo? Um, so I'm a baby boomer. Um, I went to high school uh, in the seven, early 70s, and in England, we were having a lot of trade union issues, Margaret Thatcher, um, and my father was an airline pilot, and he, he, he been uh, uh, in bomber command during the Second World War. He was a uh, squadron leader, and he, he flew these big liberators, so after the war, when he joined British Airways, which was then BOAC, they gave him the long routes because he was a very qualified pilot. And he, so he did the uh, Tokyo and Hong Kong and Singapore flights. And he brought back all his artifacts and souvenirs and told me all stories about the Far East. So from a, from a small age, I was really interested in China and Japan. And so at high school, with all this economic turmoil going on, I thought, well, you know, there has to be another side to the story. What what do the Japanese think about the situation? You know, they weren't dumping cars into England, but they were selling them at a competitive price that the British couldn't match. And that's why they were taking market share. 
So because of that, I decided to study Japanese and Chinese at London University, joined the pharmaceutical industry, and then eventually went into banking. <laughs> That's really cool. So you do speak Chinese as well as Japanese? A little. Uh, Japanese, yes. Um, my Chinese isn't so... At London, they taught classical Chinese. So I studied um, Confucius and Mencius and Sima Xian and people like that. Um, so I should say, is that Mandarin? I shouldn't say Chinese, right? It's Mandarin or yeah, Cantonese well, or yes, a it's million. Man, it's man, well, Mandarin is just the pronunciation. The, can, the, the Chinese characters are all the same. Okay. So it depends where you are in China, how you pronounce those characters. <clears throat> okay, so you need a very big keyboard when you type. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm just um, No, actually, they do have, they do have <laughs> typewriters with one character, <laughs> but, but nowadays the computer... You put it in English, it'll translate to Chinese. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Well, again, Chris, thank you so much. I hope one day our paths cross. You know, yep. I, I hope and Yes, uh, give me a call when you arrive and I'll meet you at Narita. <laughs> You've you got a deal. I will take you up on that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks. God bless you and have a wonderful day. Yep. Thank you very much. See you soon. <laughs> Well, if you like this interview, you can see a little bit more, an expanded version, at our patreon.com site. Become a patron, support the Rocky Mountain Mason, and get access to video as well as additional content. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care and Godspeed. <laughs>